Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael, and today we're going to do a show and tell with two very special guests. We have Wolfgang Bauer and Dan Dillon, both who work on many things within the Cobalt Press umbrella. And specifically today, we're going to talk about some of the Midgard products, the World Book and the new Player's Handbook that were released recently. Dan, Wolfgang, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. My my pleasure. So I'll start with you, Wolfgang, just because you have the awesome name. Sure. So if there's anyone in the world who listens to our show who doesn't already know you or your work, uh, what's the background? Who is Wolfgang? How are you related to the hobby? What would they know you from? Uh, back in the 90s, I edited Dragon Magazine uh, at TSR. I worked at Wizards for a while. Uh, and then 12 years ago... Wow, that seems a long time. I founded Cobalt Press <laughs> with a tip jar on the internet, and it has kind of grown out of control. And um, again, we mentioned the Midgard books, but I, I probably became first aware of you, or really aware of you, with the Tome of Beasts, which yeah. came out a couple of years ago now. Yeah, that was two years back. Tome of Beasts was a huge hit. I mean, I love monsters, and I've always loved monsters, and did some of my first design for D&D on... Um, second edition monster compendiums and Alkadim monsters. Uh, so yeah, doing Tome of Beast was kind of a dream come true, made possible by Kickstarter. Um, and it's gone through three printings, so I think I'm not the only one who loves monsters. Yes, so I, I don't want to jump too far until we got a chance to talk to Dan. So uh, so Dan, what's, uh, you? Who, who is Dan? Sure, um, so I'm a freelance role-playing game designer working mostly on 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons these days and loving every minute that I get to do it. Um, I got my start in Pathfinder, um, and then uh, once 5th Ed came out and had their OGL, it was uh, pretty much never looking back for me. So I've done the vast majority of my work for Cobalt Press. Very fortunate to get to do it. Uh, I've gotten to work on fantastic products like the Tome of Beasts, um, which was super fun. I love monster design. That's kind of where I got my start doing, um, you know, just riffing on, on fun monsters and ideas we hadn't seen before and, and filling holes in various games for, you know, mythology and other uh, other fun monster tropes that weren't out there very well yet. So that was uh, that was a little bit like coming full circle for me. It was a great time to work on. Um, and then now, of course, the Midgard books. I've done a lot of adventure conversions. Um, I've had the good fortune to work on some Wizards of the Coast products, um, which unfortunately I can't talk about. That hasn't been announced yet, but it's coming out later this year. <laughs> Soon. Yeah, soon, soon. Um, I've gotten to work with a bunch of other great third-party publishers, so my work is just kind of out there and around. Okay. So I'm not known as the mechanics or crunch guy on the show. I'm I'm, I'm lovingly called Professor Fluff. I'm all about the story. I don't really care about the rules. The rules don't matter to me. But if you need someone to design a Tresharktopus, I've got you covered. All right. Excellent. <laughs> yes, it is one of the most iconic monsters I've ever used in a game. It was awesome. All right. So I'll jump back to you, to Wolfgang. So you founded Cobalt Press. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what was the, the process, the the jumping off the cliff fear, I imagine, about starting your own production? Well, company? it wasn't. I sort of eased into it by telling myself that I was not founding um, a complete, you know, role-playing house that I was just, just going to self-publish a few things that uh, Wizards or, or Paizo at the time was not going to be publishing. So I'm like, ah, publish a few of my own things under the OG. Yeah, that'll be fun. And I wanted to do it as a community forum. So I had, this is how long ago it was, 
I had a message board on LiveJournal where I would talk back and forth, the Facebook of its day, uh, talk game design, put up some polls, and like people threw money in a hat. Basically, like a hundred bucks later, we had enough money to buy some cover art from Jason Engel, which also tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> it's like, Jason, would you do this for a hundred bucks? Sure. If I said that today, I think the answer would be different. Uh, <laughs> he's come a long way, too. Uh, but, you know, we didn't really have editors. We playtested the heck out of stuff. It was all sort of a free-for-all. And it was so much fun. I'm like, well, I didn't make any money, but I published this book, and it was a good time. Let's do it again. And it snowballed from there, right? And then when Kickstarter came along, suddenly I could no longer say, I don't have any money to pay for a hardcover. It was like, no, actually, I could print that as a hardcover. Yeah, Kickstarter um, really changed the game. Yeah, it really, yeah. really did. In terms of hardcovers and full-color interiors and um, just, like, production values and being able to afford, like, more and better editing, right? Things that people don't think about. Yeah. Um, or spending time on a playtest cycle that, you know, well, it was informal. It happened before, but now it's like we have a team and we have several hundred playtesters working through the next monster book, the Creature Codex, it's like, man, we have a lot of people beating on this stuff so that mechanically it's right. Yeah. Um, whereas before it was adventure design and we would play test it by running it. So, yeah, things have changed. But uh, in 12 years, you learn a lot about the business. It's like, you know, business banking and all that boring stuff like, hey, we have a bookkeeper who helps us out. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think there's only... I, I really think that right now we're kind of living in a, an, a, an amazing time to be a, a role play yes. gamer. I think Kickstarter has has just made it possible for so many people to do something that it wasn't really impossible before, but it's there's an avenue that's been clearly defined. Like you have an idea, you have a concept. If you have an exciting idea, right? It's way yeah. easier. I mean, it's still not easy. Let let me no. not kid anyone about how many hours we are putting into this next monster book. Like every right. weekends and, you know, team meetings and phone calls and, oh, my goodness, we dropped this. We got to get that. There's still a ton of work. But we've also raised the bar for what we can do, right? Like we're a mid-sized company now. We can produce more. It's not like the one guy in a garage dreaming really hard that I can make this thing. Right get up as a pdf on the dms guild like that's that's a rung that wasn't available 12 years ago mm -hmm. but it's also a fairly low bar right i mean it's easier to get on there with at least something um <laughs> i'm gonna complain about the state of the industry 12 years ago it's like there was no easy way to do print on demand and you sure couldn't use the forgotten realms in your game and people didn't understand the ogl very well at first so yeah We've gotten better, and I think the industry has all of these good products um, to look at now and say, oh, I want that stuff, or I'm going to run that game. We're, we're spoiled for choice, absolutely. I don't know what I want to run next right now. Right. So I, I want to touch on the Kickstarter just for a, a bit longer, just because there are a lot of people who will listen to our show who back Kickstarters or who have ideas for their own Kickstarters. Because there is such, a, I don't say easy, but since there's such a clearly defined avenue to getting things out there, what do you think sets things above? And not maybe not specifically your products, but certainly we can talk about those. But what is it that you think that allows certain products to raise above the chaff 
to show that this is something we're supporting that you can get two, three thousand people. Well, let's who talk about it. Matthew Colville, right? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's risen well above the state. I think he's set the bar, right? He is the new bar for biggest tabletop RPG Kickstarter ever. How did he get there? Uh, well, part of it is his YouTube channel, right? Part right. of it is having a good product that's priced well. Part of it was promoting the heck out of it for a year before letting anybody buy into it, right? Um, I think... I mean, there's no secret sauce to Kickstarter, though the path is pretty well trodden at this point. But you need to be somebody who has a book or a topic that people love, right? Like, hey, a book full of monsters. That's going to be popular. Strongholds and followers. What a great idea. Those aren't really groundbreaking, but they serve a need, right? So for me, a large part of what Kickstarter does is it it sets up a way for um, people in the industry to bypass a, everybody <laughs> and go straight to the fans. Yeah, you don't need you don't need to find investors or, you know, a publishing yeah. house to to buy in or fund it out of your own pocket, right? right? And, yeah. and hope <laughs> and hope or, or have all that capital yourself, which, you know, for just anyone walking in trying to create an RPG product really isn't feasible. Um and I think it's important for people, now we you know, we should look at things like, you know, Matt Colville and, you know, the, before that there was the Seven C Kickstarter and and just these massive successes. That's great. It's awesome. I love seeing it. They show you, you know, what's I, possible. I, support it. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Don't expect that anybody can walk in and do that, right? Like Matt Colville has a giant audience and he's plugged into the critical role audience and yep. you know, he's promoted himself as a guy who knows D and D, right? He knows D and D, he knows what he likes, he knows what he likes inside and out, he talks about it all the time, he gets that out there and and so he has that foundation, which really helped boost his Kickstarter's success. But if you just want to start a small Kickstarter, right? If you're not <laughs> If you're not mad and you want to be uh, successful with your first Kickstarter, I mean, understanding, understanding, for instance, that Cobalt Press started with one writer and a hundred dollar budget, right? Yeah. That was it. Uh, and we did our best on that, but it was black and white and like 16 pages with a cool cover and no editing. It's sort of knowing how to, how to set the hook <clears throat> How to get started with something small. And honestly, I talk about this in one of the Cobalt guides, like world building or something. Um, because what I get most often from people eager to jump into the industry is a query letter that says, hey, I've got a 10-part campaign arc and I'd like you to publish it. And I look at it, and or I look at the, the email and I say, huh, you've never published anything before. I haven't heard of you. You don't have any social media profile or YouTube or, you know, you don't have a Twitter. How, what? Why should I risk a ton of not just money, but like time and effort from a team of maybe 10 people to to make that thing fly? Right. So I'm gatekeeping based on you're trying to do too much. Whereas mm -hmm. if you show up and you say, I've got an adventure for fifth level characters. 
and it's all about, you know, the Black Riders, and here's what it does. I might say, eh, I've never heard of you, but 16 pages is not going to consume the entire staff's effort for a year and a half, right? We'll, we'll knock that out in a couple weeks. Right. Um, and it, I think Kickstarter backers are the same way. If they already know you, like they know Cobalt Press or they, they know Colville or something, um, they, they'll say, oh, well, I know you, I trust you, I, you've delivered stuff before, you know, I'm going to show up with 50 bucks in my hand and say, here, make this thing fly. Um, if you're new, I tend to think most people want to support the underdog and the little guy, but they only want to support you a little bit. <laughs> right. That's the sad reality, right? Yeah. I'll, I'll put 10 bucks down, maybe. Cautiously pessimistic. Yeah, and if I lose ten bucks, I'm like, ah, oh, that's sad. I wanted that guy to make his dream happen, but here's the update post that says, you know, I tried and I couldn't, and here's the PDF because it's never going to see print. Well, and there are a lot of smaller publishers who are doing exactly that, right? They'll they'll kickstart for you know eight hundred, a thousand dollars, and they'll make an adventure, and they'll talk yep. about this is the first of many, and we'll do more, and and they do well, right? Like right, uh, and they're learning how to do more, right? Because the mm -hmm. first time out, you don't have a clue. Yeah. Like how do I <laughs> how do I do any of this? Yeah. I think again I'm by no means an expert, but because of our show, we do kind of circle around a lot of kickstarters from particularly newer people and newer companies uh that like to try to use our platform to advertise and sure. then I also just follow a bunch because I'm, you know, I'm in role playing games and I like kickstarters. Uh, and I think from what I can see the outside in looking in one of the biggest opportunities people have is not pricing their stuff well yeah. and then not setting good expectations right i mean you know again if you've like said if you've never done anything before no one knows who you are you could be the most brilliant game designer in the world yeah but if your first kickstarter is looking for a quarter of a million dollars you are not going to get there no it's just not going to happen no you know even matt colville again he got like two million dollars what was his initial goal at like fifty thousand yeah and i thought at fifty thousand that was maybe it was a little low for him but it was like the bare minimum product, he needed to do a print run. Okay, that's going to be 50 grand. Well, at 2 million, he's doing a whole lot more than that. Right. Right. But um, people don't don't cost it out ahead of time. They don't value their own time. I sometimes see numbers set too low, right? Like mm -hmm. somebody says, I'll send you the hardcover from Canada to the U.S. in full color for 25 bucks. And I'm like, dude, yeah. that's barely postage, right? Like. Yeah you're that that you're losing money or you're working for free and your artist is working for free right things things cost and i hate to see newcomers show up and basically get burned or burn the audience cuz they're like oh i thought i could ship it but i can't and <laughs> and then you've lost what success you could have have had and now when you now you know what you're doing your next kickstarter you know, some people are going to be a little hesitant because of the first one that didn't go well, even though you now know what you didn't know. Right. Um, so I want to jump to Dan a little bit because uh, yes. Wolfgang was talking about, uh, you know, I guess not necessarily starting small, but, you know, if, if you've not, you don't have a huge following starting with something reasonable. So as, as a freelancer, what is your avenue to try to get your foot in the door to a company or a new product? Like, how do you formulate your pitch 
And do you think it's easier to start with an adventure and a monster? Like, give some, I guess, freelance advice to some people if they're thinking about doing the same. Sure. Um, well, my path was um, not one that is easily followed. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I can give you a little background on how I did it, although that's sure. that's not necessarily going to be accessible to everybody. Um, so, there, Paizo did a contest for a number of years a while back, which they have currently stopped doing, called RPG Superstar. Uh, and a good friend of mine, Steve Helt, uh, was the winner in... I want to say 2012, maybe 2013. So he won. He won that whole design contest. He showed off his chops, and Paizo picked him to write an adventure. Um, and and he and I used to game way back in you know my high school days, back in Terre Haute, Indiana. And so he was talking on social media in the wake of all of that, of doing this. He had this book idea for a book, and he felt like golems and constructs never really got enough love, so he wanted to do a big book of it. And I just started jumping in on his, on his posts, just riffing crazy ideas for a a tooth golem, right? What do tooth fairies do with all the teeth they steal, right? <laughs> they make golems out of them. And, you know, just kept going on and on and on and on. And he, and it, he got to the point where he said, all right, you need, either need to stop talking, come work on this book, or realize that I'm going to just take all your ideas and write them. So <laughs> so that's that's kind of how I got my start. I, I was in the right place at the right time. You know, I've been doing uh, running games for a long time, so doing game design for myself. So I had a pretty extensive background in it. And, and had a pretty good handle on, on mechanics and balance and all of that. So I was able to get in the door pretty easily uh, working for uh, smaller publishers like uh, Rogue Genius. And then, and then you know, with great fortune, got to work on the Advanced uh, Races Compendium for Wolfgang. And, uh, and that was kind of my introduction to getting into this. And so I started with... Um, just getting in on small third-party projects that we're looking for ideas, we're looking for people to, to work on. And so if that that is an avenue to get into it, right? If you don't know somebody who's got that foot in the door already, you can at least plug into the communities where people are talking about it. And if you start getting your ideas out there, people will start to notice you and people will start to talk to you. And you can even do that in sort of... Um, sort of a working for yourself sort of way or not even working right just sort of hobbying for yourself with the uh, the advent of you know how popular blogs are these days if you start a blog like um Brandis Stoddard, he's a he's a great freelance designer uh, and he has a blog called Harbinger of Doom where he just like every week he just writes he just riffs whatever's interesting to him so he'll have you know here's six new backgrounds for PCs who are fey touched and there's different kinds of things you can do with 5th edition to make your character kind of tied to the Fae. And then the week after that, he'll have, here's here's my homebrew campaign, and these are these weird races I'm using. I'm going to tell you about them and, and show you their statistics. And he'll just do that, and, and uh, he'll dig through old, you know, history of D&D, like where did the fighter come from, and he'll do deep dives into these classes, and he puts that stuff up on his blog. He puts he writes articles for Tribality.com. Uh, and, and that has gotten him noticed, right? He's got, he's got a good head on his shoulders for story. He's got a great head for mechanics. And, and so it helps to be good at the writing part and yeah. the crunch part. Yes. But, but the point is getting it out there, right? So people right. see your stuff. They know who you are. They know your name. Like I can say, Hey, you're looking for somebody to write stuff. This guy, Brandis, he's good. Go, go talk to him. And that, you know, has gotten him some design work. And, and, uh, and that is, that is a way to do it. You just, you got to get the visibility if you're really trying to get into it. So social media is great for that. There are design groups. There are, you know, freelancer workshops groups that are on Facebook. There are some people on Google Plus, believe it or not, still using that. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, third-party publisher and, and game design people on Google Plus. So you just, you got to, you know, put some feelers out, look around, do some searches to see what you can find. And if you start plugging into those communities, 
that will start getting your name around at least. And, and that way, once you have an idea of, you know, your voice and how you like to write, then, you know, you look for companies like Cobalt Press that have open pitch policies. Oh, we're one of the few, and I keep thinking I'm going to shut it down, but the door's still <laughs> open. Yeah, there's yeah, a, there it is. There's right a page, cobaltpress.com, yep. whack submit, I want to say, slash submit, whatever that symbol is. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we don't take a lot over the transom, but we take some, and people show up with, like, I say no a lot, but <laughs> but it's still a possibility if you just are too shy to engage with the community or, you know. Well, and another avenue there is the Cobalt Press blog, right? I know some people have oh, showed yeah. up and they've gotten some articles up on the blog. And, and sometimes that, you know, is just their thing. But sometimes yeah. that turns into something else, right? And and so it's all about just trying to get yourself out there. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I'm hoping I'm not going to say the wrong name, but I think Rodney Thompson uh, and, both, and Mike Olson both started by being on blogs and forums talking about other games. Mike Olson loved Spirit of 77, was constantly hacking it. Yeah. And eventually when they wanted to re- redefine Fate as like a confined game, he got invited to participate. And then Rodney was on like a Star Wars blog. Yeah. And Chris Perkins read that and asked him to come in. So, I, you know, the thing is, just like any other, I think, avenue like that, that's in this realm, but you don't necessarily go to school for it, is just do it. You know, right. there are so many avenues, podcasts and blogs and such that you can... Do the work. People can see the work, and if you're doing good work, you'll you have a chance. I won't say you will get noticed, but you have a chance to get noticed. So, but while I think that's very very interesting, and I think we could probably do two or three episodes just yes, on all could. this. True. <laughs> I think we want to talk a little bit specifically about Midgard. Now, this is a campaign setting. If, if I for my Wikipedia reading, uh, <laughs> kind of when Cobalt Press launched, that was sort of like part of the initial thing. Like Midgard has been the campaign setting for a long time. Is that right? Uh, sort of, kind of. The okay. first five projects or so were supposed to be generic, not set in any particular world. Um, that was what I wanted. I wanted to do just plug and play, put it in your own setting. The trouble is you get designers going and they say, well, we're going to do a city book or we're going to do, you know, um, dwarves, ancient halls. And the feedback from playtesters and DMs pretty much from the start was, Hey, this is a great adventure. Uh, hey, we love your city book. You know, where's the rest of it? <laughs> um, because I was running all this in my home table. I'm like, eh, well, at the moment, the rest of it is like, um, you know, two pages in a notebook. There isn't very much. Or I'm cribbing from my notes from junior high and high school to fill out this portion over here because I had a map and there was this elf king I kind of liked. And so... It was a little bit of campaign by accident or campaign due to what we keep building it through adventures, which later I realized is exactly what happened with Greyhawk, right? Like there were adventures set in Greyhawk long before there was a Greyhawk setting published. Mm -hmm. And so Midgard was kind of the response to, we love your adventures. They clearly imply this setting. There's lots of hints. Plus you published the city book for Zobek. All right, so you've got a Greyhawk, a Waterdeep, a Core City. Just build the rest of the world around it. How hard can it be? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and six years ago, our last project before we went to Kickstarter, we actually produced a hardcover book and a poster map of the Midgard setting for Pathfinder and for uh, Fantasy Age, the setting from Green Ronin. We got a license from them. Um, 
So and we had maps by Jonathan Roberts and designed by me and Jeff Grubb and a whole bunch of other people. And it was a blast pulling it together. Um, but we were fairly limited in funds and we jammed a lot onto each page. And, you know, six years later, I said, you know, I bet we could do better on that. <laughs> I bet we could have some better art and a few more pages. And by the way, we keep publishing adventures. The last six years of adventures have kind of influenced how I see the world. Let's update it. And I have never done a campaign setting version 2.0 because most campaign settings don't last long enough for a 2.0, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, okay, Eberron was published like 15 years ago, but it still doesn't have a version 2.0, right? Greyhawks had several. The Forgotten Realms has had the most. Uh, but by and large, it's like there's one version of Planescape, right? You can buy it. It was made for second edition. There's some stuff that's kind of Planescape-y since then, but there's no core book. Uh, so it was it was interesting going back, revisiting it, saying, what the heck were we thinking here? And, oh, my God, why don't we do more with that? And it was... I have never been happier. <laughs> like, I could fix all my mistakes, right? <laughs> right? Because you've been playing for a few more years. You have different ideas. It's like, oh, we published this whole Southlands section in between the time of the first campaign setting and the new book, the new world book. And the Southlands is like Arabia and Egypt and all the hot sun, you're going to die in the desert kind of adventures. Yes. Yeah, plus a big <laughs> chunk of fantasy. Um the Knolls are all over it. The, the Lost Cities of the Minotaurs. Best at the Cat Goddess has got Kingdom of Azamar and God Kings. And yeah, Asimar. there's God Kings all over. There's Rivers of Magic. There's Flying Cities. It's quite delightful and high fantasy. And it's like, well, none of that really existed except for this one little trade city when we published um, the first one. And it's like, well, my campaign hadn't been there. So... <laughs> It was this mysterious, wealthy, interesting region that was off the map and the players had no, nothing to do with. Well, now we've published a bunch of adventures for it. Richard Pett has done some great introductions. There's this river of sand and city maps and new races. And we know what Southland's dwarves look like. They look just like Ptah, the Egyptian god, with short, big beard, <laughs> green skin. Um I mean, I could do a whole sidebar on Egyptian dwarves. They're in the hieroglyphics. The <laughs> Egyptian pharaohs love dwarves. Anyway, um, we got to roll all that together. And so the new chapter in the new Midgard world book on the Southlands is richer and tighter and more interesting and has more big hooks for adventure. Um, and it has a whole better pantheon and it's all 5e. So... Yeah, it was just a chance to revisit and rework everything. And honestly, I feel pretty darn lucky about that because most designers don't get a second crack at a setting and most settings don't get a second shot, period. Kickstarter and the advent of 5th edition really, really made that happen, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, and a big book of 5th edition crunch for Midgard didn't hurt either, right? Like the Hero's oh, yeah. Handbook is just, well, it's the Player's Handbook. For, for Midgard. For Midgard, but it's playable and it actually goes back to the, the roots of you should be able to take these backgrounds and these subclasses and these three hundred spells 
and put them anywhere. Right. Yeah, I think. I. I, I think. Yeah, I'm going to say. You know, not to not to toot mine and, and the design team's own horn, but I think we did a really good job of uh, capturing a lot of Midgard flavor in those player options, but also making them easily portable to any other setting. Like you can file some names off of these things, and you know this this will work. Like sure, the the Oath of Radiance Paladins, they're they're heavy in you know Zobek and the Crossroads and the Magdar Magdar Kingdoms. Take those those place names off, and this will work anywhere you have undead and shadow creatures. You're good to go. So, um, you know, that'll that'll play real nicely with all the new Shadowfell monsters coming up in Morden Canons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, one of the things, a lot of times when we do show and tells, just because of the nature of the industry right now, it's very, very often that we're talking about a Kickstarter. In this case, we're talking about a Kickstarter that has already been successful. That it was Kickstarter, it was funded, and now people can just purchase the books if they would like yes. now. So, yeah. so let's just get that out of the way. Where can people go if they do end up wanting to buy the books after we've talked about them for a while? Oh, sure. Um, they're down at your local hobby store because we're widely distributed all over the U.S. and Europe and Canada. Um, Australia, we're so sorry. We can't, we can't, can't seem to get into your local book chain. Um, and they're available uh, on the Cobalt Press store. So cobaltpress.com has a store link. You can grab it right there. Um, the PDFs are on drive-thru and on the Cobalt store. Um, they're, yeah, they're pretty, pretty easy to find. And they're doing really well for us because they're big, meaty books. The World Book is like 400 pages and the Hero's Handbook is like 250. So, yeah, those are, I mean... Go down to your local hobby store. You can get it. Uh, go down to your local Barnes and Noble. They'll probably maybe special order it. I, I don't. <laughs> it's always hard with third party in the big chains, right? Like yep. sometimes they carry Tomo Beasts at Barnes and Nobles. But, books a million too. I've seen them in Books a Million. Right, Books a Million. So uh, it just depends on how uh, role playing savvy the store manager is, right? Like. If they know their stuff, they're like, oh, here's the new 5e release, and here's the Star Wars thing, and here's a Pathfinder thing. Um, and if it's somebody who doesn't know anything about RPGs, then that section's just going to be kind of a train wreck. Right? Yep. So. <laughs> so so there's two, I guess the two newest products in the Midgard line are the World Book and then the Player's uh, Handbook. Player's Handbook. Hero's so Handbook. So let's talk about Heroes the World Handbook, Book yeah. first. I'm sorry, correct. Yeah, Hero's Handbook. Uh, which, again, is it's like the player's guide for that particular setting. But the options hopefully could be ported over to any setting. Oh, more game. than hopefully. We made pretty sure. Yep, yep, definitely. <laughs> definitely. So let's talk about the, the world book first. Now, you said this is kind of this is the 2.0. Right. So essentially, you've got two different types of audiences. You've got people who've already had the book before. Right. This is the new version. Yep. And people who have never had it before. And this is the only version. Right. So let's talk about people who've had the original version, who already like Midgard, who maybe already have campaign setting there. Yeah. What is the real benefit of updating? Now, you already mentioned that you know, there, you've know you fixed some things, you've expanded some things. Yeah. But is there anything beyond that that you think would be valuable for someone to buy a book in the new version of something they already have and love? Well, I'm going to point to Dan and say, in addition to all that new Southland stuff I've talked about, in addition to the new Pantheon of the Elvish Gods that I wrote, Dan did a chapter called The Shadow Realm, um, a, a whole section on it, which we've been hinting at that stuff. Uh, it's been part of the setting since we did Courts of the Shadow Fae. It's cropped up in adventures time and time and again. Yeah, but it was finally time to like spill the beans and actually go do it. So you want to talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah, that was a, that was a really cool project to get to be part of. 
just creating this, you know, really pinning down something that's very difficult to pin down given the nature of Midgard's Shadow Realm, which is very fluid, right? You know, a, a shadow will stretch and change over the course of the day as the sun moves from one place to another. And, you know, the the shadow of a tree looks very different depending on when you look at it. So Midgard's shadow is, is very much the same way. But then there's these particular fixed reference points that uh, where, where people, the people of the Shadow Realm tend to congregate. So I got to really dive into, you know, what do the Shadow Fae do in the Shadow Realm? Where are these courts located? Where else do they hang out? What are these other locations that are nearby that you can go and find these strange dark elves? And, uh, and, and, you know, where are they, where are they getting all this weird shadow gold that they, <laughs> that they <laughs> mint into coins and baubles that they buy not only your services, but your soul with them? Um, you know, uh, how do, like, what sort of trade do they have with Midgard? How much do the Midgard peoples know of the Shadow Realm? So it was really fun to dive into that and start sketching out, all right, here's, here's these towns that are there. Here's how they correspond to places in Midgard and, and what sort of travelers might cross from one side to the other and and what sort of dangers do you run into there's oh by the way there's this you know empire of ghouls in the tunnels below midgard well they have a shadow reflection too of outcasts who fled and found their way into this dark realm and now there are these shadow ghouls that are living there the only thing worse than a regular ghoul is a shadow ghoul right yes. and and you know what do, what do ghouls eat ghouls eat flesh there aren't that many people in the shadow realm so where do they get their food you know <laughs> They can and, uh, smell you coming miles away. Yeah, yep, I mean, yep. that whole chapter doesn't exist in the 2012 edition of the Midgard setting. And so we really pulled back the curtain, and Dan did just an amazing job. Thank you. Um, with the races, the politics, the adventure hooks, and the weird, creepy vibe of this place, which you know, is not like the everyday world. So, And to hit a, a note of newness talking about races, Tome of Beasts, I did um, almost kind of like an afterthought creature. It was like, hey, how about some bear folk, right? We've talked about them a little bit in previous Midgard stuff. So here are these cool Norse, Nordic sort of mead-loving bear barbarian guys. And so I did, you know, I did a monster right up for them and they were cool. And then, and then the feedback, the, the, the word from the community after they got a hold of this book was overwhelmingly great. Where are the player stats for these guys? Because I and my players want to run them. Okay. So, so the Midgard, we can take a hint. Yeah. So the Midgard (laughs) heroes handbook has an entire race write up, you know, sort of styled right after the, the fifth edition players handbook with, you know, full, lore background culture society oh and you know statistics and sub races mm-hmm. and all that good stuff and and hey how do these guys work as adventurers so there's a, they have a whole section in the heroes handbook which means they need some lore right and so they have a place in the world book and i got to write an entire society of them living in the shadow realm as this sort of spark of light and goodness amidst all this dark and creepy and corruption and and you know evil fey pacts and all that good stuff and so there's these guys living yeah, in the middle and of the all funny this. thing is they existed in midgard previously in the mm-hmm. 2012 edition, that there's talk of the Bear King and the Bear Folk and their kingdoms in the north, and they're named, and some of their stuff, like Bjornhofen, is on the map. Yep. But they didn't get much of a write-up. So the World Book, likewise, took the Northland's Bear Kingdoms and gave them some meat, too, right? So they're yeah. not just a race in the Shadow Realm. Um, that Hero's Handbook race is is all over the Northlands, and we talk about what that means for a race that's not that numerous, but pretty influential. 
and interesting and and interesting. obviously a reader favorite. So yeah, no, <laughs> so I mean the that's, troll that's one of the big there. things on the new the new the the 2.0 version is we've there's all these things that were little mentions in the first one that are really getting spotlight and expansion in the yeah. in the. the it feels book. like we had a chance to like carve out our greatest hits, chuck away some mistakes, or at least minimize them. Hmm. Um, like revisit topics that everybody always asks about. Uh, give the the DM new new hooks and new toys to play with. There's a whole appendix in the back of magic and spells that are really just dungeon masters only, right? Like the world mm. book appendices are not aimed at players, right? Um, you know, and of course DMs can make that stuff available if they want, but of course, but if it's blood magic, you know, yeah, <laughs> the there's... blood magic spells. There's a limited player audience for sure. pure evil magic that requires yep. human sacrifice. Absolutely. And there's yeah. there's a certain weight, right? <laughs> when you put something in a player supplement, you're sort of saying, this is for players, go ahead and take it, right? Right. Yeah. And of course, DMs have the leeway to, to go whichever way they want with it, but the type of book you put it in really sets the tone. So putting that stuff in the world book really says, hey, maybe don't look at this. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, this question doesn't fit here in the conversation, but I want to <laughs> ask it, so I'm going to ask it now. Yeah. So Dan, as someone who creates monsters, mm -hmm. um, do you? I mean, and it's probably different different times. But do you start with like I, I have a cool mechanic that I want to build a monster around? Do you have a cool, or is there like a, a hole in? There's not a monster that does this, or do you start with lore? Like, what is your approach when you're designing something new for a game, D and D, or otherwise? Uh, that's a great question, and the answer is yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, you know, all of those are great avenues to coming up with a cool monster. So uh, it, it depends on the project a little bit. It depends on um, the parameters of it and the scope of it. Sometimes Wolfgang will hand me a big list of monsters with names and challenge ratings and say, here, write these. And other times he'll say, here, write these. Oh, and also five of, you know, whatever you think would be cool. And and when it's whatever I think would be cool, it's usually the way I start is I'll start. I, I'm I'm very cinematic. I love movies. I love TV shows. I love seeing things visualized. So I'll think of a cool image, right? That I imagine when fighting this monster or when seeing it emerge onto you know finger quotes camera for the very first time. And that's where I kind of start. And that's where my idea starts to crystallize. And then it will turn into that's awesome. How do I make that happen in a D and D game? And then I start thinking in terms of saving throws and hit bonus and damage and damage types and all that fun stuff. So I'll, I'll start with an idea or an image, by and large, and then go from there. Even when I'm handed a list and he says, Queen of Birds, she's, you know, an animal lord and she is Queen of Birds, go. <laughs> you know, I, I start with, all right, what does she look like? What is this going to look and feel like when you're fighting her? Okay, what does that translate into what she can do? And then I'll start with that. And then, of course, I'll do research. Like, what are the myths behind Queens of Birds? You know, I'll, I'll read up on Garuda and, you know, all of these other things that have this historical and mythological significance. And I'll be like, all right, great. How do I pick from those and translate them into doing cool stuff in a D&D &D combat or, you know, in a, in a cut scene where you run across this queen of birds doing battle with you know brother ox and <laughs> and figuring out how they how they interact what they do how they would fight and then that that just sort of rolls into into mechanics so i imagine that if you know what you're doing which i think both of you do that probably by the time you're asking for art you have kind of finalized things but if there has there ever been a time where you've got art and then something about the art is like oh 
and you've made changes or it has actually influenced the design backwards? Yeah, it actually happens more than you think. Mm. Okay. Um, sometimes the artist comes back and I don't notice in a black and white sketch that the artist has painted the monster the wrong color. Um, <laughs> it's as simple as this is, is purple. It's not green. Wait, the art came in green. I guess it's green. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's just a matter of the editor and the art director paying attention between the text and the write up. And, and that's easy. The I, I other stuff a is of times it's happened where maybe an art portrayal uh, yeah. has been a little, I don't know where the disconnect happened. Maybe, um, maybe something changed between the designer writing the art order and, you know, editing and development, changing some of the creature's abilities. Well, or, it depends. You know, some artists take more license than others. And sometimes too. something happens in a play test, right? Like a play tester will come back and say, why does this guy have a ranged attack? Or, you know, he's invisible plus ranged and it was a TPK and my party wasn't ready for this at level two. Hmm. Um, and then we take the bow out, but we forget to tell the artist to take the bow out, right? Right. right. Um, so I, it can happen at a number of stages. And we're we're a lot more cognizant of it for Creature Codex right now because we're in that art stage and final text like approvals um, on art. Uh, yeah, you just got to go look at it and compare it to the text. And and if it happens not to match up, sometimes it leads to something interesting. Mm -hmm. um, like, oh, this guy has a ranged weapon. We don't have one in the stats. Should we give him one? Yeah, we probably should. <laughs> Answer yes. <laughs> Answer yes. It's like, well, is that at all interesting? Well, he's sort of a poison-wielding mercenary. Oh, so they should be poison crossbow bolts. All right, what does that do to his CR? Hmm. Right, and you can actually go to a fairly deep level of rework occasionally. I don't right. say you do this with 400 monsters, but on a oh, few... Yeah you wind up reconsidering some of your choices and maybe bumping a CR up or down um, because of something the artist just did because they thought it looked cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, in fact, I think in a, in a recent interview, Jeremy Crawford from, from D&D was talking about how uh, in the final proofing of Mordenkainen's, he ended up having to change some design because the art came back in a way that didn't match the uh the the stat blocks and design they had so he changed the stat blocks to match the art in in a couple of ways so this happens even at you know the the heaviest hitters oh of, right of role it's not something stuff. you actually yeah. want from an artist like <laughs> you want them to be creative and wild and wonderful and do cool stuff but not too creative and wild that it makes me redesign <laughs> to match yeah yeah <laughs> uh, i mean if i say he's got a battle axe please don't come back with a spear right yeah yes yeah. So again, this is probably a conversation we could also do shows on because uh, as someone who's asked for art in a very few small amounts of times for like our website, yeah. I am terrible at communicating what I want to the artists until they've like done some work. And then I'm great about, okay, that's cool, but I want this now, right. but I can't start from nothing and tell them what I want. I have to have them do something first and then I can change it. I mean, which I'm sketches sure makes them aggravated. <laughs> yeah. Artists who work at a sketch stage can save you and them a lot of trouble, right? Because yeah. they hand you the sketch and you say, oh, no, he's not fat. He's skinny or vice versa. Right. It's like mm -hmm. this undead is supposed to be gross and blubbery. Oh, well, you didn't say that. So I made him <laughs> thin and vampire like. Right. right. So and it's easy to catch then. 
um, before they've spent all that time rendering faces and claws and rib cages, right? So um, we work with sketches, pretty much everybody. And even then, the sketches come in black and white. We don't do color sketches. Um, and sometimes you miss stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. So again, you're just you're you're helping me out, and you're just. I mean, I, th- I think that's very interesting. But but let's get back to the topic at hand. Oh sure. So for someone who has not played in Midgard at all, they don't have the older edition, and maybe they have not yet um, checked out any of the adventures. What's sort of like the hook? Like, what is it about Midgard that you think makes it a great setting to play games in? Well, I have my hook, and I'm sure Dan has his. Um, well, let's hear both of them. Yeah, you go okay. First. <laughs> Uh, I'll go first, sure. Um, uh, Midgard is a dark fantasy setting uh, where the world is teetering on the edge of sliding into darkness, chaos, constant war, um, and the heroes need to save it. That's that's pretty much the basic, right? You are the good guys, and the things you're up against are impossible, right? There's a wasteland full of elder gods that walk ten stories high across the landscape. Um, there's an entire court of dark elves in a shadow dimension. We already talked about them. Um, there's an entire empire of dragons with their servants, the dragonborn and the kobolds, who are busy conquering the world and doing a pretty good job of it. Um, so as a human hero or a dwarf or one of the trollkin or one of the bear folk, uh, you kind of have your work cut out for you, but you have tools that other settings don't have. Uh, for one, you have ley line magic, which is its basically bands or rivers of invisible magical power that flow across the landscape. And if you understand ley lines, you can turn your magic from neat to kind of amazing. Um, so it's a spell amplification system. Uh, it doesn't work everywhere, so you can't just blow up the king's castle. <laughs> um, but But it's a blast when you pull out, like, they come in different strengths, weak, you know, small, medium, and large size ley lines. Uh, when you pull out one of the extra large ley lines and everybody says, my spells just got super empowered, um, you know that's going to be an exciting session. Um, so it's all those kind of tricks that make Midgard unique. Uh, it has a few unique races. It's got a whole hero's handbook full of feats and subclasses and magic. Um and it's got like 50 or 100 published adventures for it. So, Oh, and I think there's some Twitch streams happening. There's at least two um, and maybe more launching. So if you want to follow those. Uh, I know that I have been in talks with uh, Will from Encounter Roleplay about a uh, an upcoming game that I probably awesome. can't give too many details on yet. But there's, there's something cooking there. So that, that should be awesome. Well, Encounter Roleplay does awesome, awesome stuff. And mm-hmm. I look forward to that one. Um there's a couple others already live. So, I mean, yeah. you can get a feel for the setting watching it being played. Um, or you can go check out the map, which is online and free. Uh, Midgardmap.coboldpress.com has the, the core setting map with filters and, um, and all that good stuff. Uh, so you can just see the world, see the ley lines, see the kingdoms, castles, ruins search by name, zoom in about four levels, and we keep adding features to that map. So if you just want to explore the world through the map, 
that's an option too. Yeah, the cartography is amazing. Anna Meyer knocked it absolutely out of the park, and oh, yeah. uh, and and that this digital map, it's really more of an atlas. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting there. Yeah, wait till you see the layering turn on Monday. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> We're adding two new layers to the map. It's going to be nice. Oh, sweet. All right, so Dan, so what about you? So what is it about Midgard that you think is so great for for having games within it? So uh, I love the dark fantasy angle, right? I, I tend to like darker settings in general. Ravenloft is always my jam coming up in second ed. Um, and this, you know, it doesn't hit quite the same note of, of death and despair and gloom and hopelessness, but it really has a, um, the world needs heroes because if you guys don't step up, everything is screwed. And, and, and that's always a great hook for adventure. And it's a great, uh, you know, it's a great, carrot and stick combo to get people out of their houses and, and into the dungeons and into the wilds. And, and you always need that in a setting. And sometimes in some of the more, you know, I have, I have great love for a lot of these original settings, but sometimes they feel a little bland, a, a little played out some of the, uh, some of the original fantasy settings. Uh, this gives it a really cool twist and it brings in a lot of inspiration from places that uh, games don't necessarily tend to go. So there's a lot of Slavic lore, a lot of Russian, Eastern European, uh, you know, we mentioned the, uh, the, um, the like North African and, uh, Egyptian and a lot of that mythology that's playing into the setting and the background and the monsters and the things that you can encounter. And then of course the Northlands where you have your Viking adventures, you have a lot of cool setting in like a geographically sort of realistic distribution um, which some of the older settings maybe neglected a little bit, <laughs> um, which which this is the, that makes it very fun. Uh, one of my favorite parts of Midgard, though, is the concept of masks. Uh, masks. This is actually what really hooked me in when I first started looking at the um, at the original campaign setting book when I was uh, looking at possibly doing some work uh, for Midgard. Is the concept of masks is where gods are. They're less well-known in Midgard than they are in a standard fantasy setting. Really, you know, in Greyhawk, Paylor, you really know the deal, right? What you see is what you get. He loves the sun. He loves life. He hates undead. Go. And, and that's pretty much it. In Midgard, gods are more inscrutable. It's really hard to pin down what exactly they want because this god in the south might... Uh, there's another god in the north that really has kind of the same deal like Thor, war, thunder. But then down in central Midgard, you have Mavros, who's war and thunder. And those guys seem kind of similar, right? They have different names. They have different depictions. Turns out they might be the same god who has this weird agenda where he wants this thing up in the north and he wants this thing in the middle and then this thing down in the Southlands, and all of these factions think that their version of the god is the true and correct one, and they're going to fight it out to, to see who's right. And, and So pure fantasy. Yeah, and, and so who's right? At, <laughs> yeah, and so who's really right? Well, kind of all of them, and maybe that's the way the gods want it. And they don't want you to be able to pin down what they want because who knows what's going on behind the scenes. And that's a really fun aspect of Midgard because you can create so much... Um, sort of political unrest between areas because of, you know, what version of the god, who's a heretic, who's right, you know, all of that fun stuff. That That's a cool dimension to it that a lot of other settings don't really, um, don't really hit that, uh, that I dig. That and the lack I... of teleport spells. If you want to get across, <laughs> if you want to get across the, the world, there's no high level mage that you can just, you know, 
pay some gold and they'll bamf you to wherever you want to go. No, no, you have to trek there. And if you want to get there faster, you have to risk the shadow roads, which are these, you know, fairy paths that go through the shadow realm and are guarded by the shadow fae and or the ghouls who know that almost as fast as teleport is what i always tell my players right in just three days you'll be over the continent and over the mountains and through the passes and it'll be easy come on take the shortcut through the shadow realm it's like they've started to not believe me yeah you could try to cross the mountain in winter that that'll go well for you or you can pay this you know spirit that lurks in the in the cobalt ghetto who's said to know the way to open the the hammerfell road and then you can take that across the dwarven cantons and to the coast on the arbanes and and it'll be fine right and i'm sure there are no ghoul legionnaires on the shadow realm side waiting to trap some meat (laughs) (laughs) totally safe travel yeah, of course. Yeah, I love the shadow roads and the fey roads. That's just cool. All right. So you we we touched on already because there's the hero's handbook, which are basically midgard specific classes and subclasses and backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, which can can also be ported into other games. So um, I'm sure we could spend hours talking about all of them. But is there a particular favorite, either class that's unique or maybe a subclass to a standard class that you would like to highlight? Oh boy! Um, and you—you you both can answer. I've got one, but sure. it's—it's it's kind of a tell on me. Um, <laughs> there's a new domain. Actually, it's not all that new. There's a domain in the Hero's Handbook that's been part of the campaign for a while, oh, um, yes. and it's for priests and priestesses of the goddess of beer, and it is called the Beer Domain. Um, <laughs> and of course, the dwarves are big fans. Yeah. And, you know, Dan was talking about blasphemy and heresy and competing views of same gods. Well, the elves have uh, something they call the wine domain, which seems kind of like the beer domain, except for completely different, um, <laughs> other than mechanically. Um, and and so there's there's a picture of one of the priestesses of, of the beer domain, and I just think it's kind of a blast. Um because it's the sort of thing that a third-party publisher can say, yeah, I'm I'm totally comfortable with that in the Midgard setting. I think most of our players are going to be okay with that. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's never going to be the sort of domain that gets taken into canon in a Hasbro product, right? So Right. right. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. All right, so uh, favorite subclass. So, um, man, there were there were a lot of them in here. I'd say from the ones that I got to work on, I'll plug some of my own stuff here shamelessly. Uh, I'm a huge Ranger fan. I love Rangers. Um, I love Fifth Ed Rangers. I I sort of go against the internet grain on this one. Beastmasters are my favorite. Um, So I wrote uh, a a, a kind of Midgard-specific Ranger called the Zobecker Scout. Zobek is the, the free city that is kind of the central, like this is where Midgard started and then everything grew from there. So it's a really rich city and they have a lot of clockwork and they have these awesome clockwork dudes called Gear Forged. Uh, and they're, they're heavy on alchemy. The no, the, uh, sorry, not the gnomes. Good Lord. The, uh, the kobolds, <laughs> they love their, uh, they love their tinkering in, uh, in Midgard and they sort of, uh, delve into alchemy and all that other fun stuff. And so the Zobecker scout is a ranger who has a more urban focus. And so they have some, uh, uh, some cool riffs on the, the the base ranger powers that make them work a little better in cities. And they're also um, sort of dabblers into alchemy. 
And so they can put together these little alchemical concoctions on the fly. They can add elemental damage to their weapons or create little bombs or, you know, create potent acids to burn through like a lock if they need to get through a gate or, or that sort of thing. So they, they have all these, these neat little tricks and they have, uh, they're great at finding people and things in cities. Like you're, you're looking for some contraband. You talk to a scout. They can probably track it down for you. That, that sort of thing. So that, that's a fun riff on Ranger. So they're Batman. A little bit, yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> That's a compliment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm flattered. I'll take it. <laughs> yep. uh, and then, so, so a, a subclass that I didn't write that I love. Um, I kind of want to point out the Wizard School of Entropy, which yeah. uh, because I love I love wild magic for sorcerers in fifth oh, edition, and and so having a wizard school that focuses around you know what chance and fate are kind of fickle let's make them work for us and uh <laughs> and manipulates that and and maybe gets into you know wizards using some of the wild you know sending your magic in unpredictable ways but that somehow manages to mostly benefit you that's that's just fun and that's gotten a lot of great uh community response people love that one uh and then i want to point out the griffin knight for fighters. Oh, yeah. Because who doesn't want to ride a griffin? And here's a fighter subclass that is all about you have trained with this elite cadre of, of aerial knights who train and ride these companion griffins. And how freaking cool is that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, fighters deserve just as many cool subclasses as wizards. Absolutely. And I really want to point out the Hero's Handbook. We went out of our way to make sure that the martial classes got equal time and cool stuff for rangers and fighters and paladins and rogues. Um, the only class I think that doesn't get a brand new subclass in the in the hero's handbook is the monk. Um, but we have plans for the monk. So, well, if you have like a drunken master, you could certainly add the beer wine domain <laughs> combination. Yeah, I'll get all Jackie Chan on that. That would yep, be great. Yep. So I am I, I love casters. Like if I'm in almost any game that I play, if there is a wizard equivalent, that is what I'm going to go for. I like to say I I, I like to play wizards because my goal is to come up with overly complex solutions to mundane problems. <laughs> I want to try to find the most outrageous like Rube Goldberg solution to opening a door. So talk to me about casters. Like what is it about the Hero's Handbook that's going to appeal to me? Oh man. Uh, how many new spells are in here? There's about <laughs> 300 new spells, so yeah. that alone should be appealing. And they're divided up into, like, categories or sub-schools, specialties. Um, so, you know, there's a whole thing on rune magic. There's a yes. whole thing on dwarven ring magic. There's clockwork magic, dragon magic, shadow magic has a huge following. Um, so there, there are particular themes that come out of this, and each of those themes goes to a, a caster subclass, um, like the Ring Mage or yep. the Shadow Walker. Um, the Clockwork School. The Clockwork School and the Gear Mages are particular favorites of mine, but not everyone's into it. But mm -hmm. I, I totally want constructs to do all my work for me. I want to manipulate time and machinery. Um it's yeah. okay that people are wrong about that. Yeah, people can be wrong about that. That's okay. <laughs> I like to think there's really something for everybody in here. So if you know, if if one particular flavor of magic doesn't doesn't scratch your itch, there's going to be something else. Like in the arcane characters section, I think just wizard options alone, there's something on the order of a dozen different yeah, wizard subclasses. Um, yeah, you know, and there's like twelve or fifteen new divine domains. So mm -hmm. clerics get a lot of. And druids get a couple. Yeah, everybody gets a barbarian gets something. 
and you get a domain and you get a domain. <laughs> yeah, I yep. mean, we yep. got to 50 domains by really covering a lot of touchstones and stuff that's worked for us and we picked up a few things from the Deep Magic series. Um so yeah, that that came together really well to just like increase the number of options tremendously. Um and we're we're working with uh, some of the folks at Fantasy Grounds and Roll20. We'll bring some of those to the virtual tabletops, too. Yes. So so if someone's interested in, in let's say, specifically the Hero's Handbook, because I know there is always people want more options. They want more types of fighters and more types of magic. And if you go online, there is a, a glut of options, some of them not necessarily play-tested or balanced in any way whatsoever. No. Uh, but is there anything about the Hero's Handbook material that you would need to have some consideration? Like, you know, like you said, Dwarven Ring Magic. Could I add that to my own game, or would I have to then change something out, like the lore, to, to explain it? Or, like, how would that work if you just wanted to pick and choose a few elements to put into an existing home game? Oh, uh, easily, I would think. You know, Ring Magic... Um... So ring, ring magic is sort of like this is a, a dwarven tradition, but it's not the whole of how dwarves do magic. So you wouldn't have to replace all of the dwarf wizards or sorcerers or clerics okay. or whatever with ring mages, with ring wardens. Uh, you could just have this, you know, circle of dwarves, you know, has this this little bit of history that it talks about in the ring magic section. And this, you know, it, it gives you, this is where it came from. This is why it exists. This is why dwarves think about it this way. And then you could have, you know, here's this sect over here of these strange dwarves that are bedecked in, you know, silver and iron rings and, and have it woven into their beards and hanging from their staves. And here's all this crazy magic that they do. Yeah. So yeah, very easy to port into other settings. Okay. Yeah. It's almost all bolt onable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of it, like the clockwork stuff, you have to have somewhere in the setting that is, you know, gear-driven. Yeah. <laughs> um, you don't necessarily need to have the gear-forged player race to make clockwork magic happen, but you need tinkers and you need a society that builds all that stuff. Ring mages, it's much simpler. You just need to have dwarves because it's linked to that race. Right. Uh, there's a chunk of elvish high magic, like high ritual, high power elvish magic. Obviously, you need elves for that, but um, but other stuff like shadow magic can show up anywhere and with yep. any race. Um, yeah, like you can have necrophages where yeah. anywhere you have creepy necromancers who want to steal secrets from the dead, boom, necrophage. You don't have to be a, a playable ghoul to do it. So these things have hooks into Midgard, but they, you know, I think they're all core fantasy enough that like nine out of ten times, they're going to fit into the Forgotten Realms or Eberron or your homebrew um, without a whole lot of tinkering um, because they're designed to be to be highly portable. And I will say as a designer that it was easy to start uh, on a few of these going just too far in on this is a Midgard class. And a couple of my designs, I had to go back and say, all right, now let's look at this. Let's say I wanted to play this in the Forgotten Realms. Would it work? And a couple of times the answer was, nope, and we got to <laughs> fix this. So <laughs> like the, the Oath of Radiance, was a that was a tricky one to make it um, flavorful enough to fit what I needed it to do in Midgard to not step on the toes of the Oath of Devotion, which has a lot of similar power set, and, and then also make it work in other settings and and i think you know uh, between excellent uh, developers and some revisions and some playtest, i think we did a great job so I, I 
kind of sort of been insinuating that this is all 5e compatible but is it also pathfinder compatible not the hero's handbook that is yeah. a okay. pure fifth edition volume the midgard worldbook has an appendix for pathfinder um because midgard 2012 is a pure pathfinder book right that edition okay. predates the arrival of fifth edition yep um so we kept uh we kept that material for people who are playing pathfinder it's a little unfortunate that they've announced a version 2.0 right around the time we ship anyway yeah, yeah. um but it's it, it as works as now and it'll work until they ship the final version of their 2.0 rules all right yep now if uh <clears throat> if i want to get some exposure to this and we've already touched on and there'll be links for any of the the twitch streams and that kind of thing out there um you mentioned the map is free to view and kind of play around with on the website we'll have that link as well are there any pre free previews or maybe uh low cost adventures that i could go download somewhere yeah get a flavor for it yeah there's a bunch like the bear folk race is previewed on the kobold press blog there's a bunch of other previews I could send you. A few. The, the Midgard section on the Cobalt Press website also has a lot of um, yes. world region previews where it'll give you a little bit of art, a little tease of some of the art that's in the, the gorgeous art that's in the book, mm-hmm. and then tell you, okay, Dragon Kingdom, Dragon Empire, here's the deal with the Dragon Empire. You know, the Western Wastelands, here's the deal with the Western Wastelands. Uh, Northlands, here's the deal. So if you just want quick snapshots and see if anything strikes your fancy then the, just the, the Cobalt Press website and their Midgard section is the place to go. Um, if you want to dig into actually dipping your uh, your dice into the setting, there's a couple of great adventures, like, um, let's see, what Cat and Mouse, I think, yep. is, uh, is a first-level adventure, and that's available Cobalt Press Store, DriveThruRPG. Or um, Raven's Call. The, the is Raven's like Call, if you want some Northlands action. Yeah, I think it's second, third level. but Third level, and it comes with pregens. So. And it comes with pregens, so it's easy to play. And I guess I should put a shout out for the Warlock Patreon, which yes. is a fifth edition Midgard Patreon, which is loaded with uh, two mini adventures a month and uh, a booklet of lore and stats and monsters every other month or so. Um, so we we put that out um, and have done, I think, a dozen adventures by now, 13, 14. I think it's 13. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of all different levels and regions. And if you just wanted to pick up some low-level ones, I think there's a Scorpion Cult one, and there's one in the Dwarven Halls. Um, and those are available for like two bucks. And it's one night of play uh, and gives you kind of a taste of, of Midgard. Yeah, and those, are, those PDFs are available on the Cobalt Store. Okay, very, very cool. Now, hopefully anyone who's been listening is at least intrigued and interested enough Hope that so. they want to go check out some of these. Hope so. Uh, again, if they want to purchase the books, local game stores are going to have them. Uh, the Cobalt Press website will have them. PDFs are available on DriveThru. Do they do they do print-on-demand also through DriveThru for they, those? Or These are the binding on a 450-page book can be done print-on-demand, but it's a kind of not-so-great binding. So gotcha. we did a traditional sewn binding like needles go through and so it lays flat and it will stand up to the table better than the print on demand book so these are traditional bindings and the downside is if you live in europe you need to get it shipped from the states it's a little tougher yeah but again that's what pdfs were created for right yes 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So after this, the next thing on your slate is the Creature Codex, which is mm. in progress. Yep, Any teases for what might be after that for Cobalt Press? Uh, well, we've got a couple of projects cooking. I think we've even talked about the subjects of some of them in our discussion of Midgard. I'll say we're working on a big campaign arc, like an adventure book similar to, um, I don't know, not Tomb of Annihilation or Ravenloft, but in that sort of vein of, here, give me at least 100 pages of adventure for levels 1 to 10. Um, we're working on one of those, but we're not ready to announce very much about it. Okay, but sometime soon, and I, I'm soon there'll be uh, an announcement when that... There will be an announcement this summer for sure. All right, very cool. So any last words, anything that we didn't talk about that you think would be important or helpful for someone who's maybe on the fence or thinking like, this sounds really cool, but I don't know if I want to buy another campaign setting. Sure. What's the one other thing that you would say that might help push them over so they come and give you guys some money? Um, I mean... We started out as a campaign setting that was meant to be generic and lootable and easy to port over. And my whole career has been about making stuff that people can use in their homebrews and encouraging people to make their own homebrews. So I, everything about Midgard has meant to be an awesome campaign setting if you combine it, Transformer style, into one great thing. But it it tears down really nicely. <laughs> uh, and and part of me is thrilled every time I get fan mail that says, you know, I bought the setting and I'm stripping it for parts and my players don't know where it's coming from and I'm having a good time. Thank you. Um, that's not a loss for Midgard. That's a win for gaming and a success for the design of it from my yeah, perspective. Absolutely. Um, right. So so one of my favorite parts about the, uh, the Midgard world book is that it's basically just cover-to-cover -cover adventure hooks. And that was one of the core design tenets of it, is that Wolfgang even said, so what I want you to do is when you're writing this chapter, make sure there's at least four piles of gunpowder per page. <laughs> and, and, and a pile of gunpowder being that, you know, just something ready to happen and all it needs is a spark. And the DM or the players decide when and where to apply the spark. So, going along with what Wolfgang was saying, if you if you pick up this this setting book, and even if you're not interested in running it as is, it is just so chock full of adventure ideas and hooks and things that you can grab and swap a name and pencil it in on whatever map you're using. That I mean, it's it's worth it just for that, just for the the adventure idea fodder. And if you happen to say, gosh, it would be so much fun just to write, run it the way it's written, you know, we're right. not going to complain. And, yeah. and that works for you, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you both so much for sharing time with me this morning. Again, I apologize about the time zone issue, but hey, we no got problem. it worked out. Yep. Uh, I really hope that some people are listening, maybe who are not yet familiar with your work, will go check it out. Uh, again, there will be links in the show notes to everything. Uh, for Twitter, which is what I'm most active on, it's just Cobalt Press pretty simple to get to right yep fantastic all right so creature codex when is that september happen? we're That's on enough. track it won't slide into october i keep saying it <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well again once again thank you both uh for myself michael this has been show and tell i don't know the number yet but i'll i'll plug that in when we do it uh midgard world book and midgard heroes handbook so thank you gentlemen and we will see you next time thanks very much Thank you. Goodbye. The 
Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.